We come together at a time when nations around the world have convened at the UN General Assembly's 74th session. It is a time of history. It is a time when we are at the cusp of a new global agenda on climate justice. It is also a time when during the 74th session of the United Nations, we are defining and locating the interests, the global interests, and the United States' own interests in a peaceful world agenda. And this afternoon, against the backdrop of the UN General Assembly session, we mark the 25th anniversary of the Beijing Platform of Action and the Beijing Women's World Conference, at which Secretary Clinton, at that time, the First Lady of the United States, reminded us that women's rights are human rights. We also mark the 20th anniversary of the Security Council Resolution 1325, the Women, Peace and Security Agenda, which saw women as agents of peace rather than primarily as victims of war. We are also marking here in the United States the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment which gave some women in the United States the right to vote. We are delighted to engage in a series of women's leadership conversations here at Penn Law. And just this week, on Tuesday, we had President Rosa Otumbayeva, the president of Kyrgyzstan, to speak of what it was like to govern like a woman as the first woman president of a Central Asian nation. And in this room, I see many of my students who take my new class on women, law, and leadership. And Ambassador Crystal Nix Hines' visit is a part of that constellation of leaders, women leaders, who are engaging with my students and the broader Penn Law and Penn community to engage on what it means to be a woman leader on the global stage. Now, Ambassador Crystal Nix Hines' story and journey a narrative reads like something of a legend, part of our own history here in the United States and in the world. But most of all, I want to focus on her moral and legal philosophy, which was forged by her parents, Dr. Lulu May Nix, who was supposed to be here with us. And in fact, I was telling the ambassador, if she was here with us, she would have been our honored keynote speaker, and you would have been an aside. <laughs> she was an appointee. She was an appointee to the Carter administration. And at age 92, she continues to inspire and work in her community. And your father, Theophilius Nix Sr., was the second African-American lawyer to receive his law license in Delaware. And he felt a profound responsibility to open doors for minorities, women, and marginalized communities. And at your confirmation hearing, Ambassador Nix Hines, you said that you were raised in a home where public service was regarded as a duty and a privilege, more important than wealth or fame. And those were your fighting words. And you have said that as a beneficiary of your trailblazer parents, you, would, you yourself would like to effect positive change as a change agent. So as I said, your, your story is the stuff of legend. 
You graduated from Princeton University where you were a classmate of your friend Michelle Obama. You were the editor-in-chief of the Daily Princetonian. And then you graduated from Harvard Law School where then you were the classmate and co-editor of the Harvard Law Review with Barack Obama, the President of the United States. You clerked for Justice Thurgood Marshall and Sandra Day O'Connor on the Supreme Court, but you also went on to do glamorous side um, initiatives such as being a writer and producer to several TV shows including The Commander-in-Chief and The Practice. So it was no wonder that when President Obama became the president of the free world, he called upon you, given your eclectic and what I would say almost uh, uh, all-embracing background to serve as our ambassador to UNESCO. And then you returned to Queen Emmanuel as a partner. Few women in the law have seamlessly straddled private and public leadership in the way you have, Ambassador Nick Sines. And long before your ambassadorship as a counsel to the State Department, a little-known fact is that you helped to establish the International War Crimes Tribunals for the former Yugoslavia and Rwanda, which changed the jurisprudence for criminal justice and feminist legal theory. My students from my class on international women's human rights know that I speak often of the ICTRs, International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda's historic role in the prosecution of wartime sexual violence. And the Akayesu case has become the most important jurisprudence and precedent-setting case for the recognition of rape as a crime of war. So Ambassador Nick Sines, your leadership on the global stage shows the way women can lead in a way that is transformative and that ways in which women leaders can shape new theories and new ways of thinking, speaking, and practice. As Secretary Madeleine Albright famously once said, it used to be that only way a woman could truly make her way to foreign policy was by marrying a diplomat and then pouring tea on an offending ambassador's lap. <laughs> now we have gone a long way from that time. But despite progress, despite some progress, and despite the progress that have been made around the world, Sweden, for example, has a feminist foreign policy forged by the Swedish government. We here in the United States has a long way to go. On average, in the United States, women constitute 20% of US ambassadors. Last night, the Italian government at the UN convened a network of high-level women peacemakers. And this is important because in a world where since 1992, women only account for 2.4% of chief mediators of peace agreements and 9% of peace negotiations in a world where only one in five drafters is a woman. And this is where in 75 countries since 1992 there has been a conflict. So you, Ambassador Nick Hine, continues to bend the arc of justice in this moral universe towards women and women's leadership. And in our class, students have been reading Deborah Rodi's newest book on character and what it means to be a woman and leader of character. You have said when you were being confirmed before Congress as our ambassador to UNESCO that you are an entrepreneur, a person who changes organizations from within 
and you said, I am well positioned to help UNESCO and the United States to accomplish a shared vision of global peace because UNESCO's mission is to build peace in the minds of men and women. And as we gather here at Penn Law, that is the message that we want the leaders who are gathered together at the United Nations to hear. So thank you for being with us to speak on women's leadership on the global stage. Well, with an introduction like that, I feel like I could just sit down now and bask in it all. Um, that was very kind, thank you so much. And it really is wonderful to be here with you all. I was saying I grew up in Wilmington, Delaware, but I never stepped foot on Penn's campus, so it's really a privilege to be here and great to see such diversity in the classroom as well. And kudos to you men who've come out to hear about women in leadership as well. I appreciate that. Um, it does feel a little bit surreal to be speaking about leadership today in light of the national events and uh, I just came from New York where I had uh, coffee with a couple of former colleagues from the US government right near the UN and um, it occurred to me as I was taking the train down um, listening actually to Justice, the biography of Justice O'Connor called First which I recommend um, thinking both about sort of her difficulty in, you know, being only offered secretarial jobs when she first graduated from Stanford Law School, despite being at the top of her class. But I was also thinking about how we have two very prominent examples of women on the global stage, in one case a girl, you know, Nancy Pelosi and Greta Thunberg, the 16-year-old Swedish girl who's leading the charge for climate change. And I don't want this to be a partisan talk. In fact, we need old-fashioned bipartisanship now more than ever. But you know, whether you agree with them or not, whether you're pro-impeachment or not, whether you accept climate change or not, it can't be denied that, in the, that the eyes of the world are on Nancy Pelosi right now, and increasingly young activists like Greta. And they're sort of textbook examples of leadership. One of the things my parents always taught me is that you need to be ready for whatever comes your way. So get the education, get the skills, and most importantly, have the integrity and the character and a strong moral compass so that whatever hits you and whatever circumstance you find yourself, you're ready for it. And you can step up to the plate and do what's right. And that just doesn't apply just to leaders in the national spotlight. It applies if you're a worker bee in a large bureaucracy or an employee in a global corporation or a nonprofit or working for a powerful Hollywood celebrity. Now, you don't want to be an enabler. Don't put your head down and shrug and say it's above my pay grade. Don't excuse things that you know deep down you know aren't right. I firmly believe that your generation is going to have to solve some of our toughest problems. Issues like gun violence and climate change and the growing inequality gap, which we read just yesterday, I think it was, that it's now wider than ever. And so we're going to need people of courage and character and emotional intellectual fortitude to engage in these issues and make a real difference. And I do believe that we'll see more progress if we place more of an emphasis on ensuring that we have all voices at the table. We need to have more rooms like this. Now, over the past two decades, you know, I would say that we've made significant progress when it comes to diversity and inclusion. But there has to be a renewed focus centered not only on bringing diverse talent to an organization, but actually in creating environments that encourage them to stay and rise and thrive. We're seeing women and minorities being promoted to significant positions. The growth rate of women GCs is climbing. In 2017, it reached a record 32 companies, or 6.4%. 6 
And we even saw the first Latino CEO of a Fortune 500 company. And yet, despite how far we've come, there's an astounding 85% of lawyers who are white and 64% are male. Despite a national population that is 50% female and 30% non-white. According to a recent survey, female lawyers, and especially women of color, are more likely than their male counterparts, and maybe some of you experienced this in class, they're more likely to be interrupted, to be mistaken for non-lawyers, to do more office housework, and have less access to prime job assignments, or the ability to be a rainmaker. And I firmly believe that America can do better than that. A professor of law at Stanford said it this way, Law is the least diverse profession in the nation, and lawyers simply aren't doing enough to change that. And I think, you know, we've maybe reached a plateau where there isn't the same commitment to it as there used to be. Um, to quote from a report published by the New York City Bar Association, the data show that straight white men continue to occupy the vast majority of partner, equity partner, and other leadership bodies and law firms and corporations. In fact, over 90% of law firm chairs, managing partners, and others in key leadership positions are white and many male. And the numbers, sadly, are not improving, according to a recent Law 360 survey. What is particularly troubling is that the number of minorities in firms has remained relatively flat, hovering around 3%. Racial minorities comprise over 8% of equity partner positions a number that's basically staying the same over the past four years. And a stunning, a stunning 85% of African-American women leave law firms by their seventh year, according to the ABA. To quote a report published by the New York City Bar Association, the data showed that straight white men are doing less and less to change these conditions. So the theme of what I want to talk about is disruption. We need the sort of kind of disruption that the tech companies are doing that are changing the traditional ways of doing things. We need new approaches to diversity and inclusion that will pave the way for progress and innovation. When you think about the dictionary definition of disruption, it's disturbance or problems that interrupt an event, activity, or process. In our context, I'm talking about interrupting the status quo has become somewhat comfortable or indifferent to the current inequalities that we see in American society and, and globally as well. So how do we change that? We need deliberate intention. When you think about you know, skipping stones, you see you know, even the smallest stones can disrupt water and if you throw a lot of stones, eventually the face of the water will change. And that's what we collectively need to do. I had the privilege of serving in the Obama administration, as was mentioned, um, for a president who believed both in American leadership and in the importance of international collaboration to solve some of the world's most pressing issues. And that approach was welcomed at UNESCO, which was founded after the ashes of World War II, you know, to promote international collaboration um, around the areas of education and science and culture. When I got to Paris in 2014, I worked with my team to figure out, you know, how could we bring real value to the organization? We identified two gaps in the work that was being done, and UNESCO has a vast mandate, as I'm sure many of you know. But we decided to focus on preventing violent extremism through education, 
and helping girls and women obtain 21st century skills in the STEAM fields. STEM plus the A for art and design. So we launched two global public-private partnerships to address these issues. The first was called Peacework, PeaceWorks, which was launched to help develop and deliver tools that empower educators and students to prevent violent extremism through education. As you know, France was a hotbed of um, radical terrorism, uh, including when we were there, uh, but also around the world. And it happens when young people feel isolated and cut off from opportunities, and they become prey for terrorists to radicalize them. So what could we do to educate them um, and keep them from being drawn into violent extremism? And we talk about encouraging inclusion. Now I want to underscore that globally can be a matter of life and death. The threat of the attack is global. And the second partnership we launched was called Teach Her, which equips teachers um, with state-of-the-art education and, and STEAM skills so that they can encourage girls and women in developing countries to pursue these careers. Because despite a saturation of low-skilled labor, there's an unmet global need, demand for skilled technology and engineering workers. But unfortunately, many women never consider these careers. In fact, we know that if girls aren't exposed to STEAM by middle school, they'll never consider it as a career. <clears throat> Globally, women account for less than 30% of the world's researchers and make up only 10 to 15% of engineers internationally. My own daughter, who's 15, she's a techie, I mean, we had to do a lot, my husband and I, to really encourage her to stick with it, because we'd go to these clubs and classes, and there'd be only boys. And so I'd have to call the teacher and find out when there are going to be a few girls in the class so that she would go and stick with it. And, then, and girls need that kind of encouragement um, around the world. There was a young girl um, that I spoke with in Ethiopia, and she thought that being a conductor was, and being an engineer was a trained conductor, so she didn't want to pursue it. So, they need input into their lives to realize that these can be viable and productive careers. The national security arena is no better. A report by Foreign Policy Group found that more than half of graduate students of international affairs are women, yet women have never exceeded 20% of senior positions at the Defense Department and only 40% in the State Department, and as you mentioned, only 20% of ambassadors. In fact, we started a women's ambassadors group um, when I was there uh, during my tenure. I, you know, I thought the military was actually seeing real progress, but I was surprised to see that women make up only 20% of new lieutenants and only 12% of colonels and less than 10% of generals and admirals. So to combat these trends, a group of foreign policy experts has started the Leadership Council for Women in National Security, which has challenged all 2020 presidential candidates to pledge gender parity national security if they're elected president. Fifteen contenders have signed on so far. But you know, I get tired of these statistics in 2019. I want to see more breakthroughs. I want to come before you and be able to talk about all of the achievements and the glass ceilings. Ultimately, hopefully, at some point, the ultimate glass ceiling has been shattered. I want to see more women and minorities become leaders and game changers and rainmakers in their firms and their corporations, public interest organizations in Washington, globally around the world. Not just because it's the right thing to do, and it is, because it makes business and organizational sense. The business case for diversity 
has never been stronger. It's one of the practice areas that we've established at my law firm, and so I've looked at a lot of the literature, and you know, there are numerous studies that show that diverse teams and organizations produce more better results, they make better integrated decisions, they deliver more value to their institutions, their shareholders, and we need young people like you folks to be able to actualize this potential. Um, just as Marshall used to say that, uh, he said, we must dissent from the indifference. We must dissent from the apathy. We must dissent from a government that has left its young without jobs, education, or hope. We must dissent from the poverty of vision and the absence of moral leadership. We must dissent because America can do better, because America has no choice but to do better. Like Kim, I too believe that we can do better. I believe that we can do better in expanding diversity and that we can be a catalyst for a change through disruption. So we have to ask ourselves, what can I do to dissent? How can I challenge overt hostility towards diversity if I confront it? How can I overcome diversity fatigue, which we see more and more? What can I do to disrupt the status quo in my law firm or my legal department or my law school? What can I do to make the spaces that I navigate more diverse and bring more diverse voices to the table? These are the kind of questions that can move us towards the kind of disruptive energy that will effectuate real change. But it's not enough to ask the right questions. We need smarter and more innovative solutions. So where can you start? If you join a law firm, perhaps that means building a referral network that you can use to refer diverse attorneys to the cases your firm can't take on. Maybe it means sponsoring or mentoring a high potential attorney with a diverse background. For those in corporations, maybe that means introducing whoever purchases legal services in your department, or maybe it's you, to introduce them to diverse law firm contacts. For those in other spaces, that can mean volunteering with pipeline programs or engaging with your local bar association about how to stem the hemorrhaging of diverse talent in your law department. It's sometimes disappointing to me that women and minorities, that we don't use all of the disruptive power that we have. As organizational psychologist Ronald Riccio put it, you know, men's friendships are often based on shared activities, poker, <coughs> golf, and they tend to be more transactional, reciprocating favors, and working together on projects. There's an expectation that you'll refer business back and forth. We women sometimes you know, are not the same. A recent Forbes article interviewed many professional women, and they wrote that women who received an ask from a friend said they didn't expect their friends to hit them up for business. And when they did, it sometimes <coughs> caused an unspoken tension that dampened their enthusiasm for the relationship. Some even began to doubt the true motives behind the friendship in the first place. Others went so far as avoiding those who might ask for business later. So what does that tell us? We need to learn to help each other overcome this discomfort and be more proactive about helping each other. We need to flex our, use our platform and our power and our connections and our influence to help each other rise and not look at each other as competitors. Sometimes, you know, people get in the room and then it's like 
slam the door, I'm in, I'm gonna, you know, and I'm not gonna open the door to help make sure others come in and rise and flourish. So here are three things, three practical things you can do. Ask how you can help every time you meet with the women, socially or professionally. Be as direct as possible. It tends to elicit an actionable response rather than vague promises to follow up. In fact, uh, someone had offered me some help uh, not too long ago and, and she followed up with an email and she said she felt like she needed to do that to my partner of mine so that we would realize that she was serious about her offer for help. You know, I really thought about that and I thought, you know, we need to be both the givers of help and be willing to receive help. Secondly, recommend friends to friends. We need to intentionally promote each other as the experts, leaders, and business resources we are, particularly since women are generally more prone to highlight others' accomplishments rather than their own. And seek women out, don't wait to be approached. With or without a concrete need, women need to actively build their professional support system and network. If you have a need, ask for help. And if you don't have a need, ask how you can help. And men don't think you're off the hook. We need more men who are also engaged in this effort uh, for inclusion. The New York City Bar Association's report says, unless we engage non-minority members in inclusion efforts, these percentages will never change. There's simply not a critical mass of women and minority attorneys at the most senior <coughs> levels of leadership to affect change. So we need all of us to partner together. And you know, don't be satisfied with lists that only include men. Um, make sure that there's an inclusive approach to your own contributions. In my faith tradition, one of the sermons I heard has stayed with me says that we should all have a Paul, a Barnabas, and a Timothy in our lives. A Paul is someone who mentors you and advocates for you, helps you build your career. A Barnabas is someone on your own level, a friend, someone you can share with and you can support each other. And a Timothy is someone you mentor whose career and life you're invested in advancing and supporting. Sometimes we're so intent on finding the Pauls, we neglect the Timothys. We need to have all of them in our lives. When I was on the Princeton Board of Trustees, we had a dinner with first-gen students, and their stories were incredible. Maybe some of you were the first in your families to go to college or law school. One woman mentioned that she had to study with a coat on because they didn't have any heat. Another had to dodge gangs just to get home safely every night. They all had someone in their lives, whether it was a coach, a teacher, a pastor, some chance encounter with alum, who gave them hope and a vision and a sense that they could have more and achieve more in their lives than their circumstances would have predicted. We can be those people. Let's together be purveyors of hope an intentional, determined catalyst for diversity and inclusion and bridging the equality gap. Even the smallest stones can create ripples of change and we can be those catalysts in the world. Thank you. Thank you, Crystal, for those moving and powerful words. So here at Penn Law, my class on women law and leadership has brought together a group of disruptors.
to really rethink and reimagine the workplace from a gender perspective and to create disruptive policies, we have created an ideas lab. And the students themselves are playing the role as disruptors in coming up with ideas and policy prescriptions that can transform the workplace for both men and women. Because men too are demanding these diversity and inclusive policies that will help them uh, advance to their best potential. So many of what you many of the ideas, values, and uh, philosophies that you spoke to are very much consistent with the disruptive ideals that uh, the disruptors in my class have designed. So I'm going to take one minute to ask, can you put your hand up, those disruptors in my class? All of those who are in my class, yes. So I do want you to speak about some of those issues, but I have Fumaya Ekato, who was last year's an office bearer of Balsa when he was supposed to come last year, uh, being our discussant leader. And she will have pose a few questions to you, a few comments to you, and then we will open up the conversation to the other disruptors, not just in my class, but around Penn. Thank you. Good afternoon, Ambassador. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Um, See you. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here with us today. I loved that you touched on the idea of being a disruptor. Um, in Professor Rangita's class, as well as another class um, that I'm taking this semester called Critical Perspectives in Law, we are entertaining this idea and actively engaging with it. And there's a quote that often comes up when it comes to diversity and inclusion that says, Diversity is being invited to the party, and inclusion is being asked to dance. And it has gained popularity, but I have an issue with it because it, it implies a level of passivity. Because what happens when no one asks? And that's something that you touched on, which is that the insiders are doing less and less to change the status quo. So for those of us who are going to be young attorneys at law firms or government agencies, what are the things that we can do from day one as young professionals to be disruptors and to courageously change the status quo for those who will come after us? That's a great question. And actually, I don't like that phrase either for the other reason that you know, being invited to the party implies that it's not your party, right? That you are somehow pushing yourself into something for which you don't belong. And that's, that's not the case. We all belong. We all have the right to be at the table. So, um, and I think you do need to delve into whatever institution you're in with that perspective. Don't let other people sort of hold a question mark over your competence, um, whether you have, you know, whether you should be there. You have to assume that if you're hired and you, you know, obviously with the credentials that you all have, that you're every bit as talented as you know the guys, um, people who are non-diverse. Um, and and I sometimes find that we as women and uh, women of color, and even African American men, I think, and other minorities shrink down. We don't assert our um, power and our competence. Um, women often will sit in meetings and not say anything. You know, guys will often claim credit for ideas that women had and women don't speak up. So I think that you have to come at it um, thinking that I'm in all I'm all in hundred percent. Obviously your skills have to be second to none. You may have to work harder, um, I would say always have to, the 
because you know I think there's that. I think sometimes uh, majority men get a pass, like if something wasn't good the first time, oh well, you know, there must have been some reason. I don't think a lot of women and minorities get that many chances, um, so you always have to be on top of your game. Um, and then when you're there, um, I think you know, constantly doing your best to recruit others. Um, we're in sort of my firm. We're some of the African American partners are getting together to figure out how can we increase our numbers of associates, what can we do? So we've you know, taken some ideas to the leadership, uh, gotten some approved, so we're gonna be rolling some of those things out. And I think wherever you are, you need to look at how you can improve the environment in which you're in and open up opportunities for others, as well as making sure that you, know, you continue to rise. Because um, ultimately, the more people there are at the top, um, then you have the influence to bring in others. Does that answer your question? Yes, thank you. Um, I just wanted to ask a question based on a, a concept that we've discussed extensively in the Women Leadership Lab, which is Sheryl Sandsburg's lean-in concept. And one critique that we've discussed is that it's not accessible to all types of women, women of color, women who do not adhere to the very restrictive norms that are placed on women, particularly in corporate environments. And so as a woman who has been wildly successful in a wide range of different areas, I wanted to know what your thoughts are on this idea of leaning in um, and which ways that you think that women of color can be more assertive in these environments, knowing sort of the different burdens that we bear. I mean, my experience has been that women generally have always leaned I mean, and whether it's in the corporate environment or whether it's uh, we'll juggling a couple jobs, we'll try to raise their kids. Um, I feel that women and minorities, you know, by and large, you know, are always working double time. So, um, you know, I, I appreciate the perspective. Obviously, there are a number of women who have, um, you know, chosen to pursue less ambitious careers um, in order to, you know, have families, and I, you know, I think that's an important contribution as well. Um, but I think fundamentally organizations need to embrace, you know, to make changes in order that women don't feel that they have to make a choice between a career and a family. Um, it's important that everybody um, is able to do both, and um, that may mean, you know, yes, I'm going to leave at 4.30 to um, take care of my kids, pick them up from school or whatever, but I might, you know, be back on the computer at eight or nine after they've gone to bed. Um, so there are ways to navigate it, and I think it's important to try and, and, and do the juggle. Um, but there are men who do that too, and, you know, I think somehow sometimes women get, you know, penalized for it in a way that you know, men don't. So we need to make inclusive environments where everybody can flourish and be sort of well-rounded. So, as I told you, Ambassador, in our Women, Law and Leadership Lab, we are actively engaged as developers of this lab. The students are developing a gender and business index, which will be submitted to the Saudi Kingdom. But the students and I are also creating a database of women who are trailblazers in the law and in business. And the criteria that I have uh, shared with my students, the disruptors in selecting 
women who are trailblazers is to look at two particular criteria. One is whether they have paved the way for other women, that they're not only trailblazers for themselves, not only high achievers, but who have then blazed the trails so that other women can follow in their footsteps. And second, whether they have, as innovators, created a new philosophy, theory, practice, or paradigm change in the legal arena. And thirdly, whether these trailblazers are those who resonate with our own students' identities, journeys, and stories. So there has to be a resonance there. And you know, our students have chosen very, very interesting disruptors. This is a list. This is a, this is a list that you want to be on. So you know, <laughs> because no one else, no other law school, no other class has, is in the process of developing this database. Right, so what you said about always, always open the door for others is really important. And so with that, you know, we have men, men who are trailblazers. And so Justin, Justin, you're the, uh, the co-president of BALSA. Yes, and then um, we have Eduarda, who is the co-president of LALSA. Hi, so, sorry. There we go. So. Uh, hi, thank you again for, for being here, Ambassador Nix Hines. Um, on behalf of Balsa, we, we appreciate you in having people who um, can trailblaze in, into professions in which we're not always seen is, is very helpful. Um, I wanted to ask a question about your time in UNESCO. Um, so recently we've seen a very strong uh, fight and attack on the norms of believing in science and believing in education. Um, and as you spoke a little bit about in how UNESCO has used its, its platform to fight against extremism, I'm curious now in this time where there is an assault on science and an assault on education, how do we continue? How do we strengthen that commitment to those areas um, knowing that the benefits that they can have? So no, I, I, well, first of all, there's an attack on multilateralism, which I think is very un unfortunate. Um, you know, America has always been a global leader in countries. One of the things that really struck me during my ambassadorship is how hungry people are for American leadership. Um, they want that engagement in their countries and their educational systems, um, helping them resolve, you know, address really complex issues. So have that withdrawal, um, that go-it-alone mentality has been, you know, very unfortunate. Obviously, we withdrew from UNESCO, which is, you know, very unfortunate. I'm hoping that, you know, we will come back in at some point. Um, but, you know, in terms of continuing, you know, the path forward, we're seeing it now. We're seeing young people who are demanding changes, you know. I mean, I was really struck by the, the, the climate strike and the the eloquent words that were spoken about how we are not fulfilling our responsibility to the next generation because you know we're leaving the climate in very difficult circumstances and if and we have time but we've got to move now to um, correct some of these things that are happening that we're seeing um, globally and we all live on this planet it's always been curious to me why you know sort of the emitters and the polluters why they feel that's okay when they have to live here. They have kids and grandkids. Um, so we have to keep bringing those cases to the American people and hoping that at some point um, 
you know, change will come, which has come in the past, right? I mean, that's what the pioneers of the civil rights movement, the women's movement, human rights movement, you know, all of those things have started with everyday people who've had enough, who stood up on the, who weren't going to take the backseat of the bus, right? So we have to figure out how we individually can make a difference. And we have to ask ourselves that every day because the problems are difficult. And we have to figure out how to forge consensus um, and not not talk to people on the other side, but figure out how to reach common ground so that we can actually get sensible solutions accomplished in gun violence and climate change and human rights and equality. So I'm looking forward to hearing what some of your disruptive ideas are. Hi, Ambassador. Um, my name is Eduardo. Well, there was an interesting, um, some of the women in the White House, even in the Obama administration, felt that they, they all come to me, but I thought their story was interesting. You know, they felt that they were being ignored in meetings or whatever, so they had a strategy of reaffirming each other. So when somebody said something, they would reiterate the point, maybe make a second point, but made sure that the point was heard. Um, and I think that's a really important thing to do. And I try to do that um, when I'm in a room and there may be a junior associate or you know, only a couple women. Um, I try and affirm sort of what they're saying and making sure that the point is heard. Or if I'm running a meeting, I'll make sure that I've, you know, called on people or asked invited responses from others. Because um, there can be a thing where you sort of feel like you're on the outside looking in even when you're in the room. So, but we, it also is important for us to inject ourselves. Like we shouldn't, um, sit back and not raise our hand or make a point. I'm always trying to encourage my daughter who um, tends to be on the reticent side to sort of, you have, you're smart, you have great ideas, you know, raise your hand in class, make a point. Um, don't let other people dominate the conversation. And I think, you know, we as women, um, we need to encourage more of that and empower each other. Um, I went to an alumni women's conference called She Roars at my college and one of the speakers said that you know she encouraged us to stretch our hands and lean forward and said you know this is your space use it you know use your power um, and we need to every day you know remind ourselves of that And I thought a lot about how, you know, there is this idea that if you're too aggressive, like that's not good. If you're not aggressive enough, or if you're not loud enough, or if you're too loud, or and I and I think that that can make it very difficult to really know how to even act. Yeah. Yeah, right. So what do, you, how have you responded to the words used to describe women, maybe even yourself, 
And what words would you use to describe, like what how a woman should be attacked? Yeah, no, I mean that's um, that's a very difficult issue, and I think there's no there's no one approach for any women. I think women have different approaches. Um, you know, obviously, you see even on the campaign trail how women are described um, versus men, um, and it is, I think, and that I think has not changed that much in corporate America or even in the political spectrum. And I was even reading when I was reading this book about Justice O'Connor how, like, even though she was, you know, the head of the state legislature, how they would, you know, talk about her looks more than her ability to run, you know, an effective body, um, and if women are you know, assertive, they're aggressive, you know, all of that. Um, but I think you have to do it, you know, in a way that's true for you. Um, I have, you know, worked with counseled people sometimes about their approach, you know, their ways to get ideas across, um, drawing people in as opposed to antagonizing them and, you know, sort of learning how to make your points without seeming overbearing, but not shrinking from it either, but making them in an effective way. And I mean, that's true for men as well. Um, you know, and you have to be open, I think, to receiving input. If you're in an environment and somebody says, you know, you could have said that a little better, you know, not to get your heckles up and say, what do you mean, or whatever, but actually to hear what they're trying to tell you, because oftentimes, yeah, they're trying to help you, particularly if it's coming from another woman. So I think, um, and I also encourage young lawyers and others to invite that kind of feedback, you know, ask how how did you think I did at that meeting? Or is there something I could have done better? Um, is there a way I could have gotten the point across a little more effectively? So that you give the people freedom, you know, to give you in constructive input. Because we are in a time, I think, where everybody's so careful and, you know, the Me Too thing and all of that, which has been really important. But it also has had the, you know, I think the side effect of making people um, that much more wary about engaging because they're afraid that you know might be taken the wrong way, so you have to create a space for which people can uh, give you input into your life. So, Ambassador, I have one question, which involves some of my students who have worked with me on some of the multilateral programs that you talked of. So, you know, I think sometimes labels, as you pointed out, may not be adequate to describe an initiative or a way of thinking. So for example, we don't need to call everything that we do diversity and inclusion. Sometimes you know, the International Women's Human Rights Program and class is about engaging in multilateral idea sharing. And that is true diversity. It is a diversity of the global uh, agenda. And so for example, last year, Joel, who uh, worked with me on an anti-discrimination project, looking at the anti-discrimination and the discriminatory laws in family laws around the world, but not just the family law, but all laws that, um, that limit the status of women in their families as well as in the public sphere. So when it's banking law, access to credit, access to land tenure, access to inheritance laws, all of them form the corpus of the ways in which women's agency is limited both in the family and in the public <coughs> sphere. Now that is really about the diversity agenda, understanding mm -hmm. the ways in which you know, we are global citizens. And I think that is important because as we say, when there is a retreat from multilateralism and there's a growing threat 
of xenophobia, nationalism, populism, and nativism, what we need is that kind of global perspective mm -hmm. of being global citizens. And mm -hmm. that's true diversity. Mm -hmm. It's not diversity as in, you know, these, what sometimes I feel like, you know, canned diversity programs. Yeah. No, I think, but true yeah. yes. perspectives, mm -hmm. a true philosophy that grows out of being a global citizen. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right, and I think framing it in new ways um, is part of that disruptive process. I mean, as you know, the longer a girl stays in school, the more she's able to earn, but the more she's able to give back to her community. So one of the things you have to do, you know, is make the case to families, well, you know, don't take her out of school so she can work at home. Let her stay in school. She's going to actually get a job that's going to support the family and impact the community for the better, and we're all invested in that. If you want to see societies turn around, then you know, invest in women, because women tend to give back to their communities. And you know, I think the other key is finding initiatives that actually um, benefit everybody. Sometimes you know, things go nowhere because different groups feel pit against each other. We had a, at Princeton, we had a trustee initiative on diversity, and one of the things we looked at is why um, you know, junior faculty women were dropping off just at the point of tenure. Um, and it turned out that tenure also coincides with you know, child rearing. So a lot of women were downscaling their careers in order to raise their families or have families. So by extending the tenure process three years, you know, women could feel like they could breathe, they could actually achieve and get their theses done um, and raise their families. And it turned out that men also liked having three extra years to do their dissertation. So it was one of those things that actually had a diversity-producing result, um, but that was an inclusive thing that everybody liked. Um, now, that won't always be the case. Sometimes you do have to make hard choices. But if there's a way to achieve results in an inclusive way rather than in a competitive way, it's going to have more long-term sustainability. More questions? Hi, um, so this summer, I was in a conversation with a number of partner women in the global partners, senior council, council, and a really interesting point came up, and it was that in the era of Me Too and a lot of discrimination cases against um, big law firms, some white male partners are now more hesitant to give critical feedback to women of color and to women um, and how that really impedes our career. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to know what you thought about that, if you have any advice about navigating that, particularly as a black woman going into big law. No, I think that's absolutely true and that, that's sort of one of the unintended consequences, I think, of you know, the Me Too, you know. Um, I think men are on, you know, less willing to invite somebody to lunch across gender. Um, I think about when I was at the State Department, I used to travel a lot with my boss around the world, and you know, I wonder sort of what the. I mean, he was great, and I'm sure he would still invite me as a young, you know, person. But I think a lot of younger women find that they're not invited, you know, on the trip, uh, not invited to have a one-on-one -on -one where you talk about your career. Um, so it is difficult. Um, I think that. You know, we have to create environments where people feel comfortable to do that. Maybe, you know, partner takes out two associates to lunch, um, you know. Uh, maybe several people, you know, go on a trip so that they, so that there isn't that concern. Um, and women have to step up and mentor more women as well. 
because of that circumstance. And one of the, uh, I always like to talk about Meg Whitman because Meg and I, um, you know, Meg was the, one of the founders of eBay and then she became CEO of HP. Um, and when I was deciding what to do after my ambassadorship, um, she was one of the people I reached out to. And, you know, Meg has done, I think, what very few people I've encountered have done, which is to provide very concrete, practical help. Um, first time I met with her, she had a whiteboard. And every time she thought of somebody that I should talk with, she'd get up and she'd write the name on the whiteboard. I mean, and these were, you know, people in her orbit. Um, and then she would, you know, send emails out introducing me and I would have conversations with them. And then when I decided to go back to my law firm and um, I met with Meg again and she sent out emails to a bunch of her contacts introducing me as a lawyer and asking that they meet with me. Um, and she in put, invested in me, you know, and used her stature to help me. She didn't have to do that, right? Um, but that was sort of one of the most concrete ways that I've seen somebody actually use their stature to open the doors for somebody else. And versus other people who would say, you know, well, good luck with that, or let me know how it goes, right? Um, and that's the kind of person that I want to be, and I think that's the kind of person that more people need to be, is like extending yourself to help somebody else succeed. So we have, in conclusion and summation, Professor Regina Austin, who's done more than anyone else in this law school to really expand the horizons of diversity through a, what, you know, a critical legal studies perspective, through a critical race uh, theory perspective. Because sometimes I think when we talk about diversity and inclusion initiatives, when you're really, really looking at ways in which it can stretch the theoretical aspects of what should law be? How can we disrupt law? How can we transform law? How can we dismantle these hierarchical structures within the law that keep us from the kind of full inclusion we're talking about? And I think that's what Professor Regina Austin has been doing for many years, both at Penn Law and elsewhere in the world. So I want um, Professor Austin to speak very briefly about what you do in terms of documentaries and the law, because that is really about providing a tool for, for disruption, and then sum up uh, the ambassador's work and words. Oh, well, thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about what it is I do, but I'd rather talk about what it is that uh, you have just experienced. Um, I'm going to hit on some words that I think are important. Uh, an important takeaway from what Ambassador Nix Hines has has told us. Um, ostensibly, we're talking about we're talking about uh, leadership, um, but she wants to hook up leadership with disruption and interruption, mm -hmm. which is not something that we generally think of in terms of in terms of of leadership. Um, what does it mean to be a leader who is disruptive? and who is interested in interruption, um, and a woman at that. Um, and so that, I think, is something that she has left for you to, you to, uh, to think about. 
um, beyond that, and, and I was trying to find the article. I don't remember whether I read it in the New York Times or the Washington Post because I read both of them. It could have been in the Philadelphia Inquirer, and it will wind up in the Philadelphia Tribune. Um, the article on inequality uh, was quite, quite disturbing, um, and I think all of you should actually look for it. The thing that I found most disturbing was that although a, a good economy lifts all boats, the people at the bottom are really sinking. Um, and what does that mean in terms of our diversity agenda? Uh, what does that mean in terms of diversity at the highest level and maybe at the middle <laughs> level um, when it makes people at the bottom uh, worse off? Is there a contradiction between our pursuit of diversity and our concern about economic inequality? And what does it mean to be a leader with regard to diversity without taking into account um, the lack of leadership, perhaps, with regard to economic inequality, recognizing, as we do, that women are the, are the people who are most likely to suffer uh, from the great disparity between people at the top and people at the bottom. And that is something that I think you have uh, urged, urged us, us to do. Um, in terms of uh, the advice that you have given um, with regard to how women conduct themselves, um, how women should extend themselves uh, to help other, other women. Um, that, I think, is important. If you're asked to serve on a panel or if you're asked to put together a panel, um, don't agree to serve on the panel if the panel is segregated. Um, if you are the token, if there are no minority people, uh, if there are no women and you're a minority person, um, there are things that you can do uh, in your everyday affairs that I think uh, will be disruptive and that will interrupt the status quo. And then finally, um, there's a real question about uh, institutions. Um, should we devote more of our efforts to creating competitive uh, institutions, um, integrating an existing law firm might be a way of achieving diversity, but there are limits to that. Um, what about more institutions that reflect our values um, and maybe also um, don't reflect the values that are associated with the legal profession in general? Um, what kind of courage does it take to start an institution? Um, to what extent um, can alternative institutions uh, be disruptive? Can they interrupt the uh, status quo? So you've given us a lot to think about. Um, and I really appreciate um, your coming and sharing your thoughts with us. Thank you. That was a more cogent presentation than I think I gave, but I appreciate that. On the last point, do you mean like women and minority-owned law firms and things of that nature? Well, or? it may be that we we need nonprofit organizations as opposed to profit-based organizations. It may mean that we have institutions that are run uh, by 
uh, alternative uh, populations of people, um, not just women only, uh, but organizations that are led by um, a, a diverse uh, population of, of, of leaders. Um, I think we need more opportunities for people to come together around concrete uh, goals and concrete endeavors, that that's really the only way in which we will get to know other people, uh, other groups of people, uh, on, a, on an equal basis. Um, and we, we don't do uh, enough of that, um, I think. And, and that's really what, what diversity and equity um, require. So um, I want to end by saying that in our first class in the Women, Law, and Leadership Lab, the first article that we read was Joan Williams, Joan Williams who taught me feminist jurisprudence in law school, and she's now at UCS, uh, on bias interrupters. That was the key article that we read. It is about how do we interrupt bias, and that is part of leadership. That is really a cornerstone of being a woman leader. So you coming here is really about that is about also interrupting bias. Seeing a woman of color in one of the most powerful positions, whether it's in the State Department, the US government, in a law firm, in the public arena, in, uh, in academia, is about interrupting bias. So your very presence changes the dynamic, changes the currency, changes the energy in a room as you walk in. So we don't really give enough credence to the fact that your entrance to the room changes the discourse in a way that can never ever be the same again. So thank you for changing us. Thank you for changing our law school by your presence, by your voice, by your energy, and your wisdom. Thank you. forward to reading and hearing about your careers and the choices that you make and you have all the tools to make a huge difference so thanks for coming.